joint statement from the salvaging group SARS-CoV-2 Task Force and Vaccination and Medication Advisory Board, filtering out fake news and misinformation regarding health maintenance, vaccines, and optimization of the immune system is becoming an increasingly uphill challenge. The Salvagine SARS-CoV-2 Task Force was set up in January 2020 with the aim of providing our Salvagine Premium clients with the best possible service during the current pandemic by critically evaluating information on SARS-CoV-2, filtering out the irrelevant and or misleading, and communicating the results. It is a job that has become increasingly difficult. We have had to contend with conspiracy theories as well as PR stunts staged by Western governments and vaccine manufacturers. The whole situation has been made worse by ineffectual health organizations, such as the WHO, and extremely careless statements emanating from high-ranking government officials. This means that we have to rely almost exclusively on our own internal research sources, which we cultivate in our relationships with research institutes and universities, and in our scientific network. We also draw heavily on published data from a select few scientific journals that can be relied upon for their impartiality. And surprisingly, this is where problems arise. We are in direct contact with a number of editors who are telling us that they are coming under unprecedented pressure from governments, non-governmental organizations, and private companies to publish or not to publish certain things, and that this also extends to editorial policy. This is of great concern to us because the editorial content of these scientific publications is as valuable and dependable to us as our own research. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the official name of which is AD26.CoV2.S, was first approved in the USA and has now been given the all-clear by the EU. The product was developed by Janssen, the European subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, and has always featured high on our list of vaccines. Like Sputnik V and the AstraZeneca, it is vector-based. The principle is as follows. A harmless adenovirus, which normally causes the common cold, acts as the so-called vector, into which a gene section is inserted containing information on the structure of the spike protein from the envelope of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. After the vaccine has been administered, the vector virus docks onto the cells of the vaccinated individual and introduces the DNA into the cell, which then begins to produce the coronavirus spike protein according to the template provided. The immune system can now use this protein to train for a real emergency and to produce antibodies and T-cells. In the event of an actual infection with the coronavirus, the system is already primed for instant defense. In our vaccine comparisons, Johnson & Johnson is by far the best performing of the vector-based vaccines, especially as regards the formation of T-cells. Essentially, this is one of the advantages of vector-based vaccines, which produce significantly more T-cells than mRNA vaccines are capable of. This is particularly relevant for our salvaging premium clients, who have very high risk factors and therefore usually have weak T-defense cell structures. The vector-based vaccines are preferable in their case. Unlike mRNA technology, vector technology-based applications are not new. They are already used to combat Ebola and also against dengue fever. The injection is administered into muscle tissue and full vaccine protection is achieved after 14 to 28 days. In addition to mRNA and vector-based vaccines, there are also protein vaccines, which we will discuss in our next keynote. Johnson & Johnson has one huge advantage compared to all other corona vaccines. Only one dose needs to be given. Furthermore, the vaccine is convenient to store. It will keep for three months in a refrigerator. 
These two factors put Johnson & Johnson on pole position to become a world vaccine. During clinical phase 3, it transpired that, after only a single shot, 90% of the participants had already produced sufficient quantities of the neutralizing antibody, far in excess of the results achieved by AstraZeneca. Consequently, it was decided to declare it a single-dose vaccine. The reason why a second dose of the vaccine fails to produce the expected increase in effectiveness could be so-called vector immunity. The immune system of the vaccinated individual not only forms the desired defense against the spike protein, but also against the vector virus itself. The manufacturers of the Russian vaccine Sputnik V have taken the added complication of vector immunity into account. The Russian vector vaccine uses the same adenovirus for the first dose as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is why the first shot of Sputnik V is basically the same as the Johnson & Johnson. However, the second dose of Sputnik V uses a different adenovirus as a vector and thus bypasses vector immunity. This produces impressive results. The efficacy of Sputnik V is the highest so far, at over 90%. Consequently, the EU has reached an agreement with the Russian authorities to allow the licensed production of Sputnik V within the EU. Our colleague, Thomas Martens, chairman of STIKO, Germany's Standing Vaccination Commission, also confirms our belief that the Sputnik V vaccine will soon be approved in the EU. The Salvagene Vaccination and Medication Advisory Board concludes from the data so far that the concept behind Sputnik V has been vindicated. We have recently ranked the Sputnik V vaccine as the number one vector-based vaccine, partly on the basis of this exemplary development study. Thus, clearly ahead of Johnson & Johnson, and even further ahead of AstraZeneca, which has the additional drawback that its vector is not derived from human, but rather from chimpanzee adenoviruses. Because Johnson & Johnson is a single-shot vaccine, its efficacy rate is 66%, well below Sputnik V, and on a par with the AstraZeneca. The comparison is complicated by the side effects attributed to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Another major advantage of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is its, by no means intentionally, late market entry compared to most other vaccines, with the notable exception of the updated BioNTech-Pfizer, the development phases of which generally antedated the appearance of the B1351 South Africa variant and the P.1 Brazil variant, thus compromising the protection they offer. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine has a distinct advantage against these dangerous mutations because it was exposed to them in Phase 3 clinical trials. It has a level of efficacy that is roughly equivalent to that of the current upgraded version of the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine. In this respect, it is an absolutely acceptable alternative to BioNTech where this is unavailable. However, it makes good sense to wait until several million doses have been administered in order to avoid the customary risk to which early adopters are exposed. As expected, Novavax is also very slowly emerging from clinical phase 3, providing data that bears comparison with the Johnson & Johnson. Preliminary results coming in from the UK show an efficacy of 96% against the original virus and 86% against the mutants. However, we are exercising some caution here because the data has not yet been officially published. Because mRNA and vector-based projects are clearly dominating at the moment, we would now like to take a brief look at the key disadvantages arising from alleged side effects in each case. In the case of mRNA, this particularly relates to supposed genetic changes and risks to fertility. 
There is indeed a very short sequence of amino acids in the spike protein of the coronavirus that has a vanishingly small structural similarity of around 0.75% to a sequence in a particular protein found in the human placenta. So the theory is that corona antibodies could also attack these proteins. However, this is virtually impossible due to the minimal similarity. Moreover, the placenta protein on the surface of the tissue cannot be attacked by an antibody. And according to this theory, SARS-CoV-2 and other indigenous common cold coronaviruses would also be likely to adversely influence fertility and pregnancy. We know from many thousands of infected pregnant women that this is not the case. Further to claims that mRNA brings about genetic modification, the human genome is located in the cell nucleus. However, mRNA does not penetrate that far. In fact, we have the opposite problem. mRNA is generally very unstable and degrades very quickly. This is the precise reason why it has to be packed in lipid nanoparticles and protected very well. The mRNA is virtually nothing more than a blueprint. When injected into the muscle, the cells build the spike protein of the virus, to which the immune system reacts by forming antibodies against these proteins and ultimately against the disease. The possibility that the vaccine RNA might be integrated into the genome or otherwise change the genetic material can therefore be excluded. What we cannot necessarily rule out in the very long term are so-called epigenetic changes, which we have been researching here at Salvagene for many years now. Such changes in themselves do not have to be detrimental. Our entire epigenetic strategy is based on nurturing positive influences and inhibiting negative ones. As we reported some months back in a comparison of vaccines, the short-term side effects are clearly more frequent and more pronounced with the vector-based vaccines. The current problems observed with the AstraZeneca make this clear. With the mRNA-based vaccines, pain at the injection site is more common. Several countries around the world, for example Thailand, as well as most of the EU countries, have put a temporary stop to the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine, while various side effects, including blood clots and allergic reactions, are investigated. Even Australia's health minister had to be hospitalised after being vaccinated with AstraZeneca. The EMA had given, to our surprise, a hasty unrestricted approval for the AstraZeneca vaccine. Anaphylactic shock and hypersensitivity reactions will have to be added to the list of side effects for further investigation. Especially in regard to previous vector-based projects, including the one to produce a vaccine against HIV, one important aspect has to be kept in mind. With viral vaccines, there is a potential risk of antibody-dependent enhancement, ADE. So far, there has been no indication in the preclinical studies that ADE could be a problem with the approved COVID-19 vector vaccines. However, anyone who is familiar with vector-based vaccines knows that this risk is definitely present in the long term. That is why we are resolutely opposed to the projects that have been approved so far to promote a so-called system change. System change in the sense of people needing to be vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2 regularly in the short, medium, and possibly also in the long term. The reason we have to be careful about system changes is that the different vaccines work on completely different principles. Extreme caution applies when administering a booster jab because the antibodies produced by the initial inoculation could increase the risk of infection through antibody-dependent enhancement. Therefore, from our point of view, a change of system is not advisable for the time being, even if the different antibodies could theoretically complement each other. We have been firmly of this opinion for a long time because projects aimed at creating antibody therapies, another subject on which we report regularly, have shown that there are more than 680 known SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. 
and the development of Regeneron in Eli Lilly, it was fascinating to observe not only the selection process for effective antibodies, but also the relevance of ADE. In light of the current status of vaccine development, we consider that the risk of ADE makes a change of system inopportune. This is also the reason why we have delayed issuing recommendations on vaccination, especially for salvaging premium clients who have relatively low risk factors. We want to ensure the best possible platform for the coming months as the existing vaccines are updated and new ones become available. Looking ahead to the spring months in the Northern Hemisphere, we again expect the rate of mutation to subside after the third wave now sweeping through parts of Europe and individual states in North America, and for a period of calm to return in the summer. Meanwhile, in the Southern Hemisphere, especially in Latin America, we have to expect considerable problems, as we saw from the dramatic increase in daily cases in Brazil reported last week. It will then be interesting to see how the scientifically developed instruments, vaccines, and medicines perform. How will things look after the summer in the Northern Hemisphere? Will we reach a moment of truth in October-November? How far will the campaign of mass immunization have progressed? And to what extent will mutations of the virus have frustrated our best efforts? As we have long suspected and predicted, all the indications are that we are in this for the long haul. Indeed, it is possible that the virus will become a permanent feature of our lives, albeit in a weakened form. The SARS-CoV-2 virus has adapted to humans, manifesting a number of special talents. The ability to spread via the respiratory tract, the large number of asymptomatic carriers, the ease of transmission by sneezing, coughing, or talking, all of which make it virtually impossible to eliminate globally. Moreover, the virus is not restricted to humans, as we saw last spring with the outbreaks on mink farms in the Netherlands and Denmark. Tigers in the USA, gorillas in the Czech Republic, cats in Hamburg, they too have become infected. The virus made the crossover to humans from the animal world. We therefore have to assume that it can return to where it originated. If we drive the virus out through vaccination, it will persist in the animal kingdom, and new outbreaks are conceivable at any time with fresh mutations. Let us take another look at our scientific flagship country, Israel, which already has the second-highest vaccination rate in the world after Chile. Although Chile has taken the top spot in the vaccination charts, the infection rate is still running at more than 5,000 per day, so we remain cautious on the prospects for herd immunity and rapid solutions to the pandemic. In Israel, however, we are already seeing what the new normal can look like, with antibody tests and or vaccination passports providing access to certain leisure activities, sport, culture, restaurants, and cafes. Nevertheless, the matter of transmissibility remains unresolved, even though the Israeli authorities are vaccinating their population with the current market leader, Pfizer-BioNTech. Consequently, social distancing and the wearing of face masks still apply at concerts and other gatherings, including for people who have been vaccinated. The core problem in Israel, with one of the youngest populations in the world, is of course the immunization of children. The vaccines have been designed around and trialed on adult recipients. Here too, Johnson & Johnson has a slight advantage, as the manufacturer also tested teenagers during Phase 3. If international travel starts up again, there is no prospect of herd immunity in individual countries as long as the virus is rampant elsewhere in the world. It is therefore all the more important that each individual continues to optimize his or her own immune response, which is why we are continuously developing our COVID-19 immunization program. In particular, we are now increasingly focusing on gender-specific recommendations. 
In the case of our female Salvagene Premium clients, our COVID-19 immunization program pays very close attention to hormonal balance, especially with regard to estrogen. As the basic optimization of the immune defense in our premium program, we have known for many years that hormones provide excellent support for the immune system, especially in women. Now that we are all battling with the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, women have a huge advantage due to estrogen-based immune response. This is one of the main reasons why men, compared to women, are much more likely to suffer from severe COVID. We will be looking even more closely at the implications of this marginal advantage for women.